A reading from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning we're considering this first section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in many ways it provides us with the other side of the coin that we've been considering in his letter to the Corinthians. The last few weeks we've been seeing how the Corinthian church had placed their hopes in fading glory, in the glitzy spiritual experiences of super apostles. And as we say, Paul put himself on display for them as a weak vessel of clay being filled up with the mystery and glory of the gospel message. Here in Ephesians, Paul starts things off with an incredible hymn of praise. In the original Greek, once Paul gets past his greeting lines of this letter, the rest of the reading that we just heard read from Ephesians 1 is one long, complicated sentence. It is the longest sentence in the New Testament, and it is chock full of theological riches. We could spend weeks unpacking these first 14 verses. So we're not going to be able to touch on everything that Paul has to say this morning, and instead I'd like to highlight a handful of things as a continuation of what we've been talking about in connection with his letter to the Corinthians. If you'll allow me some metaphorical license, I think that we could sum up a core aspect of the Corinthian problem that we've looked at over the last several weeks in this way. The Corinthians started using windows as mirrors. Rather than seeing through things to glimpse Christ and his glory, they stared at things and became obsessed with celebrity leaders and ecstatic spiritual experiences and the like, not as windows into the storehouses that are theirs in Christ, 
but as mirrors that reflect back their own glory to themselves. And in this first chapter of Ephesians, St. Paul is giving us a different way to see the world and our place in it. He is giving us a window into a new reality rather than a mirror, and it's a vantage point that can make all the difference in our lives as individuals, as families, and as a parish together. The base of everything that Paul is saying here in these verses is the giftedness of being. The fact that you exist is itself a gift. And there's a further gift that is life in Christ. Do you notice how almost all of the action is being done by the Trinity? The Father chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless in his sight. The Father destined us to be adopted as his children. The sacrifice of Christ has brought us back, redeemed us from death, and given us forgiveness of all our sins. With wisdom, he has whispered to us the secret kept since the beginning in mystery, but now revealed as his plan to bring all things into unity in the headship of Christ. The Spirit, too, is present and at work as the seal marked upon us and the first installment, the down payment of the inheritance that is ours in Christ. To sum it up in a phrase, we have already been given everything we need in Jesus. Paul uses the phrase, in him or in Christ, 11 times in this opening section. This brings us back to a thing that we return to time and time again here, that God's greatest desire for all people is that we would live a life hidden with Christ in him. This union with Christ, this being in him, is what the entire liturgy, the entire church calendar, and the sacraments all point to and attempt to unveil. St. Paul tells us that to be in Christ is to have been given already every spiritual blessing in heaven. Meaning that in the dimension of God's own life and kingdom, we already have the source of all things. To be a Christian is to be a participant in the divine life and nothing less. As difficult as it is to limit our scope here, I'd like to pick just one of the images that Paul uses and tease out some implications for our life together. And that is the image of a seal. In ancient times, the seal, or the sphragus, which is just a really fun word to say. I'm going to say it a lot. You guys, want, should we do some interactive? Do you want to say sphragus? Sphragus. It's good, right? I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly, but now we're all going to say it. Sphragus. In ancient times, the sphragus had a variety of uses, all of which are instructive for us. Most immediately, this sphragus was both the object that does the stamping and the stamp that is created by it. This would often be used to seal official documents or wills. The hot wax would be stamped with the image of the writer or executor of the documents as a way of marking their authority, right? So at the highest levels of authority, the king or the emperor would have a ring with his own seal etched in it. And when he would issue a formal decree, the letters would be stamped with this royal sphragus and then sent throughout the kingdom with the authority of the king. But a sphragus was also what we would call a brand. It was used to mark cattle and herds as belonging to a particular shepherd or rancher. It was a symbol of ownership, a way of distinguishing between one shepherd's flock and another. 
was also used as the term for the military tattoo that all enlisted men would get in the Roman army here on their arm would be the tattoo of their general's name saying, this guy now fights for me. He belongs to this part of the army. The same would have been true for slaves who would be tattooed with an image of their masters. St. Paul is using this term that has a lot of rich meaning already in his culture in reference to God and Abraham's covenant sphragus or seal of circumcision, right? So he's got his own cultural understandings of this word, but then there's also this ritual, religious, historical understanding that Paul is drawing from. The seal of the old covenant that God made with Abraham was circumcision, a ritual which itself symbolized death. The seal of the new covenant is baptism, a ritual which also symbolizes death. The early church used the idea of the sphragus within the baptismal and confirmation rites. It's still included today. When the baptized are anointed with oil and signed with the cross on their forehead as a way of sacramentally symbolizing this sealing of the Holy Spirit that Paul references here. And I want to pause from my notes to remind you that when I use the word symbol, I don't mean less than real. I mean more than real, right? It's a participation in the reality of the thing. It's not a fake thing. It's not an artificial thing. It's not a distancing thing. It's a thing that brings about union and creates it. What's interesting about such a multi-layered image as the sphragus is how it gives us a deeper understanding of the promises that are on offer to us in the giving of the Spirit to those who through faith and baptism have begun a new life in Christ. To be a sheep marked with the sphragus of the good shepherd takes on eschatological tones when we consider Jesus' discussion of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. The sheep, much like soldiers, are being marked as owned by the shepherd or their general, as a soldier would, obviously suggesting a responsibility on the part of the one bearing the mark, right? You gotta stay with your guy. Sheep are not to stray, but they should listen to their shepherd's voice. Similarly, soldiers are not to go AWOL, but are to obey the orders of their general. But that's only one side. There's another side of this equation where the shepherd, in marking a sheep as his, is committing himself to caring for that sheep, protecting the sheep, seeking out the sheep and fighting for the sheep should the need arise. Similarly, the general himself is committing to his soldiers that he will clothe and house and feed them to protect them as he is able. The loyalty, in other words, is a two-way street. Jean Danelou, in his beautiful work that roots the liturgical ritual of the church in the images and narratives of Scripture, says that it is the essential nature of the covenant to be an act of God's love by which he binds himself to dispose of his blessings in favor of the human with whom he makes a covenant. Are you, are you tracking with what he's saying? In the covenant sign, in the giving of a covenant sign like a seal, with the imprint of God's authority, he is disposing himself, he is linking himself in loyalty to provide and care for his people. He says it's a definitive order to which humans can always appeal. You can always say, no, but you marked me. You called me out. You said that I'm yours. 
This is what the church fathers refer to as the indelibility of the sphragus. Danilu again says, the sphragus of baptism then signifies a contract of God with the baptized person, whereby God grants her irrevocably a right to the blessings of grace. The baptized may withdraw herself from taking advantage of this right, but she cannot cause the right itself to be revoked. Okay, this is somewhat sterile language, but what he's getting at is that the seal of the Spirit is given to us, given to us as a result of faith and baptism. It's a tattoo of adoption. It is indelible. It is not erasable. And it marks upon the baptized follower of Christ, setting them apart as the property of the king. But it's more than that. You are being set apart as a child of the king. But it's more than that. You are being set apart as a son which I realize may have sexist overtones in our culture, but in that culture, it was the son who was given the full rights of inheritance. And each of you has been given that in Christ. The full rights of inheritance. The covenant of baptism is a contract that cannot be undone because it is impossible for God to be a liar. And all of the blessings that Paul is laying out for us in this passage, and I encourage you, go home this afternoon and meditatively read through these first 14 verses and recognize that all of these blessings are now yours by right because you have been baptized into Christ and marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit, with the sphragus. To pull from the venite that we say in morning prayer, this is why God is called a rock. He is unchanging. He doesn't shift he doesn't fall prey to whimsy or bad moods. Have you heard the phrase that there is no shadow of turning, no shadow of change with God? Do you, do you follow that image? Right? What it's saying is that there is no light behind God that could move, which would make the shadow to shift. God himself is that light. He is the uncreated light. He does not change. His promise stands forever and is eternally more unfailing than Mount Hood. And in baptism, the declaration made over Christ as he came out of the water is now made over all baptized people. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. That status will not be revoked by God. That status will not be revoked by God. It can only be apprehended or abandoned on our part. Now, given the glorious nature of the covenant that God has made with his people as a groom to a bride, a covenant that will not fail, what does it mean for us to be a people sealed with the imprint of Christ in the Holy Spirit? To begin with, we cannot afford to be blind to the reality of spiritual warfare, meaning there is an enemy who seeks to lure us away from the army of Christ, a wolf who hopes to tear us from the flock of Christ. But the fragus, so said the early church, was so potent, so real, that simply marking oneself with the sign of the cross would cause demons to shudder and flee. Just wordlessly, 
Making the sign of the cross would cause demons to shudder and flee. The indelibility of the seal of the Spirit upon the baptized believer in Christ is such that Satan no longer has any authority in the life of the baptized person. None. So if you're being harassed, the smallest thing in the world that you can do can cause him to shudder and flee because you are marking yourself out as belonging to someone else. We have to recognize that we were not born into a neutral system. We were born into a prison cell, having already sold ourselves to death. But Christ defeated death, and when we are baptized into his death and resurrection, we are given a tattoo that marks us out as people who have been made alive unto God and are now citizens of the heavenly city. So if you're struggling with besetting sins or if you feel like you don't really love Jesus, if you're struggling as a parent or a child or a sibling or a friend to be loving and peaceful and soaked in grace, I don't want to pretend like this is easy and magic because it's not. But it's also not complicated. It's simple. If you are a baptized person, you have already been given everything you need in Christ. You have been adopted with a contract etched in stone. No, etched in fleshly hearts. And all that we need to do is ask. Are you having a hard time letting go of your money and being generous? Ask Jesus to make you a generous person. Ask him to show you specifically how you can begin to be generous. Are you struggling to love your spouse? Ask Jesus to make you a more loving person, to meet that person in forgiveness and care and grace. Are you struggling to forgive a friend or perhaps an old, old wound? Ask Jesus to bring the peace of his spirit to fill you with mercy and love for those that have wronged you. Do you find yourself falling into the same sinful patterns over and over again? Ask Jesus to break you of those habits and fill your heart with desires for him and his kingdom rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin. I can tell you from my own experience, the prayer that I have seen answered more dramatically than any other repeatedly is when I say with honesty, I don't know if I love you, but I know that I want to. Help me to want to love you more and to begin to love you. And he always answers that prayer. All of this assistance and so much yours, so much more is yours already. And so we are commanded to ask with boldness and with faith. Ask that you would be formed by the imprint of the sphragus. And this is where we return to our dialogue with 2 Corinthians. The seal of Christians, baptism and chrism, are expressions of a cruciform life. To be sealed in baptism is to be brought through the death of Christ, and to have the oil of chrism applied to our forehead is to be marked with the cross of Christ. To be a Christian is to be one who has been already crucified with Christ. There is glory, 
There is joy, there is life and new creation and beauty beyond description, but all of it flows out of the weakness that we heard St. Paul talking about last week. That Christ's grace is sufficient, that he meets us in our weakness and reveals himself. To live as a baptized, baptized person is to live in the weakness and glory that you are not your own but you have been bought with the price of Christ's precious blood. As we grow in our awareness of all that we have been given, we will become a community like St. Paul envisions and embodies, a place that resounds with praise. Our whole lives becoming a Eucharist liturgy, a work of thanksgiving to a God who has lavished upon us richly the grace of forgiveness and new life in Christ. Amen.